<laughs> hey, welcome, welcome to, to Beyond, Beyond the, the Test, Test Tube, a science, science podcast. podcast. Hi, Mike. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, Elaine. How are you? I'm fine. The semester's just started, so some students back on campus, but mostly online, I think. Like, how is you Ottawa handling uh, bringing students on with COVID? So... All the personnel, all the staff, and all the students have to be vaccinated if they want to be on campus. And Great. every time that you go on campus, you have to fill in a form to say that you don't have any particular symptoms for COVID and all of this. And that's all online. So you just fill in the form and then you go. That's great. I think at the NIH, we're probably going to have something similar soon. Um, the yeah, I think Biden just announced something like all federal employees and contractors have to be vaccinated, but it'll take a while to implement. So maybe in three months, we'll catch up to you. And how's your research project? Is that kicking off? Yeah, things are really good. So this week alone, I'm going to be doing three new techniques with three different experts teaching me things. It's really cool. So I work with the retina, right? For some of the questions we have, we want to measure retinal function. Oh, it's always cool to learn the new stuff, new tricks, especially when you're learning them from people who really know what they're talking about. Yeah, the NIH is interesting, too, because they have so many resources. So I'm able to learn a whole bunch of techniques all at once. Well, maybe that's a good place to jump into or to transition into today's episode. We have Catherine Knight on, Dr. Catherine Knight. She's the news and views editor for the Journal of Experimental Biology. Yeah, the Journal of Experimental Biology is almost 100 years old. It's the leading comparative physiology journal. So comparative physiology is physiology where you study how living systems work, but then you compare among different animals. So if you want to know about how like hearing works, let's say, um, different animals will hear differently. Like, uh, you know, owls will be able to pick up on direction sensitivity really well because they need that for their lifestyle. And, and some other animals have different sensitivities of hearing, etc. So you, you can kind of better understand physiology by comparing among all these animals. Uh, so she's an editor and th there are more tips of editing than I thought. It was really interesting talking to her. She was giving you so much material. <laughs> <laughs> it was all the trade secrets. It was awesome. And there's one thing that she said as well that I really enjoyed as, <laughs> I don't like, I really have to think about it, but she said, Science writing isn't about educating people, it's about entertaining people. And to me, that was quite fascinating because obviously you, you don't think of science as entertainment, but at the same time, it's just so amazing. <laughs> it has to be entertainment at some point. So I, I thought that was a really uh, curious way of thinking about it. I enjoy that. That surprised me. It was a fun episode for sure. How did you know Catherine, Mike? So I actually applied to something called the outside JEB column, um, where a few times a year I'll, I'll be contributing a summary of a recent article. The original article will be from Nature Science and some other journal, and then I'll summarize it so it can be published as just a four paragraph article in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Some of the, the biggest names in, in Canadian biology have done this before. I'm pretty excited to take this role. You have to apply to get the position and it's an abstracting service so then she'll um, come up with some some guidelines as to how you can choose an article and then summarize it and they have to be pretty pithy and interesting you, you have to make sure that it's something that 
is entertaining, but also you can have engineers or physicists reading them, right? I'd recommend that people read them. They're almost always fascinating, like skim through them. They're only about you know, four paragraphs sometimes. They cover fascinating articles with a huge, huge breadth of, of scope. So, Fantastic. That's a lot on your plate, actually, isn't it? Well, four paragraphs is manageable, although it takes a long time. And then all there. the research behind it is what takes the longest. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, I have all the tips from this episode, though. So out of all the people <laughs> who've done this before, I have the best setup. Excellent. Well, without further ado, I think we should uh, let our listeners <laughs> listen to Catherine Knight. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Catherine, did you mind introducing yourself? Okay. So um, I'm Catherine Knight. I'm the News and Views Editor at Journal of Experimental Biology, where I write and edit the Inside JEB section, where we feature important and interesting papers that are going to be published in the journal to bring them to as wide an audience as possible. And that includes the general public. Um, I also run an, uh, an abstracting service called Outside JEB, where um, research, early career researchers contribute. They identify papers from other journals, journals outside of the JEB, and then they run them past me so that I'm happy that, you know, that they fit the journal's scope, that they will be interest, of interest to our readers. And then these um, writers, they write about the, the article that they have selected, and then I edit those articles. And during that editing process, I give them a training in science writing. I point out the things they need to think about and how to develop and build their style and to build their voice. Um, I also run a section called Conversation, where we interview uh, researchers about their experiences. We've had a section on early career researchers and building careers. And we're currently um, talking to researchers about working in the field. Um, I also run the all of the journals social media output and I deal with press interactions. So I promote um, papers from the journal to journalists to get as much press coverage as we possibly can. And so the main focus of my role is actually writing and developmental editing, editing and science outreach. And Journal of Experimental Biology is read by physicists, it's read by engineers, it's read by people with no background in biology. And so because of that, the articles are written um, in sort of layperson's language so that they're accessible to as, as wide an audience as possible. And we also use those out, those inside JEB articles um, as our press releases. And so we slightly modify them um, when we're sending them out to journalists. But the content that's in those short articles that I write um, is what forms the basis of the press releases that we send out to journalists. Some listeners surely think of, of editing as correcting grammar, um, but before those listeners really pushed up on the on the episode, <laughs> could you answer, is your job just 95% spelling and grammar? That's a really good question. Um, basically, there are different forms of editing. And so the type of editing you're referring to, which is correcting grammar and spelling, is copy editing. Um, and in fact, I would say that, you know, that's virtually not part of that isn't really part of my job. I, I do I, I do a bit of copy editing. Obviously, if I do spot, spot spelling mistakes, I correct them if I spot errors in grammar. But the majority of my job is developmental editing. And this is where we 
edit the article for under for content and for accessibility to make sure that what is written can be understood by as wide an audience as possible and when you are developmentally editing an article you're literally looking at every single word in that article to find to check that it's doing the job it's meant to do and if it doesn't do a job you cut it out so is that word contributing atmosphere is it contributing understanding does it describe what um, what you want to say and does it describe it accurately does it describe it in a way that as broad an audience as possible can understand what you're trying to say so you can't use technical jargon and this is something that when I'm right editing outside JEB articles, I spend a lot of time doing, I spend a lot of time taking the jargon that has slipped in from the research article, and then I, you know, will translate that into language that can be understood by someone with no background in science at all, let alone background in biology. Um, and so developmental editing is, is I would say, um, when I'm writing, 50% of the time I spend an article is actually developmentally editing that article and making sure the article is clear and easy to read because my job is to take the effort out of read out of understanding that piece of science and that is what all science writers do they take complicated technical 8,000 word research articles and they condense out the the, 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 the crux of the research, the crux of the science, the, the main points, and present them in a very accessible form, which means you have to throw an awful lot of information out. Um, and so that developmental editing is, is a massive part of my role. I would, as I said, it's probably 50% of the input into my articles, and it's it's everything that I do when I'm editing outside JB articles, um, when other writers are sending in a piece of a text for me to edit. Do you think that that the articles that you're summarizing or reviewing or, or promoting that they should write the way that you do as well? Like another way to phrase it is, you you said that you took uh, jargon-heavy articles and then clarified them for a broader audience, but should they be clarified in the first place? Well, that's a really good question, and actually, I would say no because there's a huge amount of information in a research article that your community needs to access to be able to reproduce that research. And actually, that technical jargon um, cuts out a lot of sort of, you know, you can get to them, if you use a technical term, that, that technical term can very often, you know, it might take me 15 or 20 words to convey that single technical term. Um, and so I think you do need the jargon when you're talking amongst your peers when you're writing a research article for efficiency of communication. So long as everybody speaks that language within your community, you'll be fine. Now, the problem comes when you're talking about interdisciplinary areas. And then, of course, the question is, is writing in a very technical way such a great idea in those contexts? That's more challenging, but I still think that writing in a technical way for your peers is absolutely essential and, and you know this is the role of science communicators we're there to be the intermediate between you know the the fast-paced technical language that, that the researchers have to use to communicate efficiently and and unambiguously because I think if you have a technical term that, that everyone buys into you know there's no ambiguity when that technical term is used 
Whereas if everybody's trying to write in a more sort of like fluid, sort of like, hey, let's include everybody in this conversation sort of way, then that precision can be lost. And that is dangerous when you're actually coming to, when you're talking about scientists talking to each other. So I think there is a place for both forms of communication. I mean, yeah, sure, it would be, my job would be a little bit easier if there was a little bit less technical jargon that I had to deconstruct, but, but then the research paper wouldn't be doing its job um, for the researchers that, you know, are working in that area. Okay, so let's, let's change pace just a little bit. How is the news and views editor position that you hold different than other editor positions? So um, there, are, there are very different types of roles um, in, in most journals. And so, I mean, for example, in Na at Nature um, magazine, there are a lot of the, edit the editors are overseeing peer review. And so they are, papers are coming in, they're identifying um, referees, sending the papers out, they're assessing the referees' comments and they're deciding whether or not to accept the paper. So that's one form of editor's role that's available. Another form of editor's role that's available is a commissioning editor. And those editors are looking for ideas to commission content to come into the journal. And that's sort of specifically reviews, commentaries, articles like that. And at the Journal of, journal of Experimental Biology, um, Charlotte Rutledge is our um, reviews editor. She does an amazing job of identifying interesting subjects. And then she developmentally edits those reviews when they come come in. She gives the authors feedback on how to um, improve their article, how to make it more accessible. Obviously, the authors are also taking into account um, the peer review comments because Charlotte oversees peer review. Now, my role is more of a sort of science communication. And so, you know, 90% of my role is writing and communicating with people. Um, and so that's a fairly, that, that, you know, there are a lot of um, science writers out there. Sci science Magazine, Nature Magazine have, you know, large teams of science writers that are going out there and writing about discoveries, writing about issues within science and so there are all these different sort of layers of roles and then of course at Journal of Experimental Biology we also have the copy editors who do an amazing job taking manuscripts and sort of helping authors to you know make sure that the article is as easy to understand as possible um, and then they sort of help authors by making sure that you know everything's consistent all the figures that they've included are actually cited in the text that all the references are cited so they do a massive job and, and the copy editors you know invest time in every single research article that we publish in the journal it's a very intense job because you know basically we only publish papers as fast as the copy editors can push them through um, and they they then take they also once they've copy edited the article they send it out to the authors you know they you the author gets your pdf proof of the research article you then go through it again then the copy editors have to enter all of, you know, make sure that all of those changes that the author also introduces at the proof stage are also put in and make sure that they put in correctly. And so the copy editing role is actually a massive role and it's really intense. And our team of copy editors at Journal of Experimental Biology are absolutely outstanding and really superb at what they do. They do a great job with all the manuscripts that come our way. So it, it sounds like you have the, the more creative position though. I probably do. Um, and certainly I get to, I'm really privileged. I get to play and have fun with the research. Um, I 
get to cover everything from the tiniest microorganisms up to blue whales. I cover everything from the bottom of the deep sea hydrothermal vents up to geese migrating over the Himalayas. I, I cover everything from Hawaii all the way back round to Hawaii. I mean, you know, water, mountains, air. It's just incredible. It's like being let loose in a sweetie shop every week because I get to cherry pick the really cool stories that are in the journal and then communicate them to a broad audience. And I'm very fortunate because I work very closely with the authors of the research to make sure that there are no factual errors, that I haven't misinterpreted their research or misunderstood it because I'm working at a very fast pace. And so sometimes I miss subtle nuances. And so I'm working with these amazing people who've gone off to these incredible places and studied these awe-inspiring animals doing unbelievable things and so it's yeah I'm, I'm incredibly privileged to have such an amazing job you know it's funny you mention that because in some of your articles for inside jb you you have these sentences like the authors were surprised to find this finding or things like that mm -hmm. you're almost journalistic like you 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 ask them questions about their experiences and not just the science they did oh yeah absolutely i mean the point is that the science is in the research paper, but the background story isn't. It never goes into the research paper. You know, the challenges of getting a grebe when, you know, never make it into the research paper. And, we, you know, I can remember talking to this author once who, who'd tried to catch a grebe and tried to catch a grebe. And after two years, still hadn't caught a grebe. And eventually the only way he could catch a grebe was by catching it as an egg you know, and then hatching it and raising it, uh, you know. Um, I, I've talked to Jeremy Goldbogen, you know, about what it's like putting a, a D-tag on a blue whale. And he says, yeah, well, you kind of think you're going to go up and the whale's kind of beneath you. Uh, uh, no, it's like coming up to a great grey wall. These things are sticking up out of the water and they are massive, you know. And those are the sorts of information that you can't I contact the authors I have a chat with them um, or sometimes I'm writing an article and if I don't have time to have a chat with them beforehand or send them questions by email beforehand sometimes I'll ask them you know oh I'll just have a hunch that something interesting might have happened in this particular situation so I'll ask them you know you know what was the hardest thing to do here or oh, did you have any problems or how did you manage to put this tag on this animal and they'll come up with this great story um, I, I was recently talking to an author um who was working with um with with primates and some of the amazing stories that came out about tracking these animals um was just you know just absolutely amazing and i you know i was able to talk to them and i got these stories and so of course i put them into the article because it's the sort of human interest the sort of journalism that doesn't come out of the research paper that that's fascinating um <laughs> It kind of makes me jealous too because it it's sort of like you can be a journalist when you like and be a, a scientist in a way when you like right like you can kind of write the article focused more on the science or, or leaning a little bit more towards people if 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 you feel like it's more interesting so um. yeah absolutely and i i feel it's really important to convey that science is a human um human endeavor um, very often people who haven't ever been involved in science and don't know any scientists kind of have this impression that science is done by, you know, these sort of automatons in white coats with glasses on that don't have emotions and don't feel pain and don't feel, you know, distress or, you know, elation. And I think it's really important to convey that science 
is a human endeavor and that people have highs and lows and they have challenges they have to overcome some of these challenges are absolutely in immense you know and and they really are they really have passion for their animals they care about their animals you know these aren't these are people who are really invested in the creatures that they're working with and really want to make sure that they work within the best welfare setup for their animals. You know, a lot of a lot of the authors that we work with in JB, they're going out into the field, they're collecting animals, but then they're releasing them as soon as they've taken the measurements that they want to take, you know, and they're making sure that the animals are safe and cared for and um and and you know if if you look at the way that science is very often portrayed in the media you know it's it, it, especially at the moment for example with what's going on with covid you know the, the human side of it just never comes through and i feel really passionate that it's important to say you know some some people you know will have you know they they will have been on boats for months and months and months without seeing their families to be able to do this research and make these discoveries you know it's it's a really important part of the story and it's all part of making the science as accessible as possible and making people realize that it's a human endeavor that's so fascinating um okay in the interest of time i'll move on just a little bit so okay you you mentioned you have a, a pretty interesting background. Did you mind talking about that a bit? Like, did you know you wanted to be an editor even early in your career? Um, I had no idea I was going to end up in science writing and editing. It never crossed my mind until I was about three postdocs into my scientific career. So my first degree was in physics because initially I was going to go and become a meteorologist. But then I discovered in my final year at university uh, that actually I really hated meteorology and I didn't like the physics of meteorology. But I'd done some biophysics courses in my final year at university. And so I went off and did protein crystallography for about 12 years. So I got my PhD, did a few postdocs, but protein crystallography is pretty, was pretty intense back in the day. And I just wasn't going to be successful enough to make a career in it. So then I had to reinvent myself and I was just really didn't know what else I was going to do. And eventually I kind of whittled down on this idea of, well, OK, I like science communication, but um, I'm, I'm probably borderline dyslexic. Real, I've always really struggled with spelling and my reading isn't particularly fast. And so anything to do with writing had just never crossed my mind. And I saw a job ad for Science Magazine and the European Office and Science Magazine is based in Cambridge, where I lived at the time, still live. And um, it said, oh, do you have contacts? Well, I postdoc all over the place. So I had loads of contacts. So I applied for this job and part of the application um, required a, a bit of science writing, which I tried my hand at. And I thought, oh, this is quite fun. I haven't done this before. Um, I didn't get the job, but I got great careers advice from Ellis Rubenstein, who was then the editor of Science Magazine. And he said, basically, you've just got to get stuff published. So I did. I wrote for Science Magazine's careers website and I wrote for Trends in Biochemical Sciences abstracting service. And eventually um, I did a media fellowship um, scheme in the UK where research scientists are put in the media. And I went to the BBC um, for a few months. Um, and I worked on a website there. I wasn't at BBC News. I was on the websites associated with the programmes and I was on the worked on a website associated with a show that was going out at the time. And um, and so I was busy moving off into the science um, communication direction. And at the end of that, I managed to get a very short term contract, six week um, at the BBC. And um, at that point, I decided I was going to 
resign from my postdoc and just really try and go with the science writing. Yeah, so anyway, I did, I went to the BBC and um, I did my six week contract. Um, you know, and that was pretty risky because uh, I had no guarantee of anything at the end of the six weeks and I could have, would have by that stage given up a perfectly good postdoc in Cambridge. Um, but they then extended my contract for another three months. And then unfortunately the job at Journal of Experimental Biology came up and I applied. And even though I had absolutely no background in comparative physiology, um, I mean, at the time, the biggest thing I'd worked on was a transcription factor complex, let alone entire tissues and whole organisms. I mean, this just wasn't on my radar because I'd been working in molecular biology for 12 years. Um, and so I was incredibly fortunate when I went along to the interview for the job, which was also in Cambridge where I was living. Um, I was really fortunate and Bob Boutelier who was then the editor-in-chief of the journal offered me the job and, and I haven't looked back since so it was a very steep learning curve coming to JEB because uh, you know my background wasn't the right background for the science but that was actually an advantage in some ways because it meant I could ask the questions that your non-scientist readership the non-scientist audience that we're aiming the inside JEB articles would ask um so you know if you don't know anything about how, how insects breathe you know i don't assume any knowledge when i come to these articles because very often i don't have the background i have to ask the question that you know that somebody who's got no background in science would ask because i don't have the background either but i have the skills to take that information quite quickly and then communicate it efficiently so it sounds like you're saying that your experience of, of not having a biology background actually makes you a better biology editor. Uh, yes, because I ask the questions that people who have a background and are educated are to, you know, assume everyone understands. I don't assume any background knowledge. But if you've been trained and if you've got a degree in biology and a PhD in biology, you kind of assume you have expert blindness. You kind of assume that everybody understands what you're talking about. It's clear to you, you've been working on this for however many years. But if you're just somebody who's just coming into it from, you know, um, you know, their everyday life, they don't have that background knowledge. And it's certainly not at the front of their mind. Even if they did biology, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, they, they're not thinking about it today in the way that you're thinking about it all the time. And so I don't have that expert blindness. And it's a real advantage. Expert blindness. I love that. Um, <laughs> okay, so um, so now let's talk about editing for a bit. I'd like your thoughts on a theory I was once presented. I, I know a, a confident writer who was terrible at editing and revising and spelling and the like, and, and he told me that people are either good at writing or they're good at editing, but they're never good at both. So mm -hmm. as someone who both writes and edits for a living, do you think this is a fair dichotomy? Like where you either create or destroy, you grow or shear? Um, I don't think it's a fair dichotomy at all, because actually, if you're a good writer, you're self-editing yourself all the time. And you should then be able to edit other people as well. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, 
you know, for me, 50% of my writing is actually editing, you know, you get the stuff down, you write the words down, but then actually, no, that sentence is the wrong way around, I need to change that, that word isn't right there, if I change this word here, then I've got to change that word down there, and that word a little bit further on, because I can't repeat the same word multiple times, because it just gets too boring to read, if you've got the same word cropping up 15 times in an article, and so there's all sorts of things that you need to think about when you're editing and you just take that into editing other people's writing. Um, I mean, you have to question, as I said earlier, you have to question every single word in a 600 word article. Is that word doing its job? And that's editing. Um, and then when you take somebody else's writing, you go through exactly the same procedure. I mean, and as I mentioned earlier, there are different flavors of editing. And so sort of editing I'm talking about is developmental editing. And as a writer, you have to developmentally edit your own writing but that's not the same as copy editing and as I mentioned we have a team of fantastic copy editors at JB who you know sort out my spelling and you know if I've got a comma in the wrong place or I haven't used a hyphen when I should have used a hyphen they'll put that in but to be honest with you the most important part of editing is the developmental editing of making sure that that piece of text that you've written hangs together as as a coherent article and if you can't edit, you know, you if you can edit yourself to produce that coherent article, you can edit somebody else's writing. Okay, so it sounds like you're saying a good writer is also able to edit themselves, right? And it, but but yeah. do you do them at the same time? So do you do you first put everything down on paper and then revise it later, or do you do it at the same time? It depends on how the article is writing itself. So sometimes if I'm really struggling with an opening paragraph I can get a bit get a bit down and then mm, no I'm not quite sure about that so then I'll go back and I'll edit and I might edit and edit and edit that first paragraph a few times until I'm happy with it and then the next part of the article which is basically where I discuss you know how the experiments were done what the results were they that tends to write itself fairly quickly these days so I don't have to go back and do too much editing on that while I'm writing it but then once the article is finished I will then go back and start editing it again um, but then once I've edited it you know thoroughly edited the whole thing through having you know got the first draft finished then I send it off to the authors of the research article to fact check everything I've written and to make sure that I've got the chronology right um, I've assigned different experiments to the right people um, to make sure all credits are correct. Um, and so there's an awful lot of, of sort of um, so and then that's another stage of editing because then I take their comments and I incorporate them. And sometimes people will suggest, oh, I suggest you say it like this, but they never quite get the style right. So then I will take their suggestion for a correction and then rephrase it. And so we then go backwards and forwards through this editing process where they're also the author of the research is having an input to make sure that the article is as tight as possible and as correct as possible um, while I'm correct, you know, fiddling with the language. And, and I can be fiddling with the language right up until the minute when I click send and send it off to our copy editors <laughs> because you know there's always I'll always go back and sort of like think oh that word isn't quite right or that word isn't quite in the right place I need to move it from this point in the sentence to the end of the sentence or vice versa you know? so so editing so 
I don't write an article, I very rarely write an article cleanly from first sentence to final sentence without a break. And certainly the introductory paragraph is always the one that's the most challenging because that's where you're jumping backwards and forwards very often between ideas. And so you're starting the article with some sort of punchy sentence that will grab your reader's attention. And actually, that's something I, I forgot to mention is, is that these articles have to be punchy. They have to be entertaining because actually science writing isn't about educating people. It's about entertaining people. And if you don't get their attention and make them feel entertained and grab their imagination in the first 50 to 60 words, they're going to go off and do something else. And so um, so that's why the first paragraph very often doesn't write itself fluently in just, you know, four sentences straight off. I very often have to go back and refine and refine and refine while I'm, you know, constructing that paragraph. And sometimes, you know, I'll put a sentence in and then completely cut that sentence because I'll realise later on, actually, it's too much information because the other thing you can't do is overwhelm your reader with information. And as scientists, we always know a huge amount of background for every story. And in your introductions for research articles, you have to get all that information in. But actually, I have to throw most of that out because if I haven't got your reader's attention, my reader's attention in four sentences, they're off, they're going somewhere else. So I can't give them too much of that information that I think is really interesting because actually they just want to be told what the nub of the story is. And they don't want all the interesting extraneous stuff, all the interesting background stuff. They just want, you know, who, when, why, what, where, who did this? Why did they do it? What did they do? What did they find? What's the conclusion? And that's the story. And that's really what they want. So that's why there's an awful lot of cutting and editing that goes on while writing that first paragraph. So interest is, is almost the, the, the key goal. And then the education just comes after that, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Because this, science writing is about entertainment. There isn't the payback that a reader gets when they're reading a research article is they get information, they learn how to use a technique. It's a profession, professional development that when it's a piece of science writing, you know, you can go off and watch YouTube. I've got a hell of a lot of competitors out there that are trying to drag my reader's attention away from me. And so I've got to really fight for that and make sure that everything I write is entertaining and interesting, you know, enough to grab someone's imagination so that their attention doesn't go and they don't wander off and do something else. Uh, okay, so let's let's talk a bit about how to write well. So re really generally, what, what advice would you give young undergraduate Catherine uh, Catherine Knight, when, like, like, how how would you tell an undergraduate today how to be a good writer? When you say how to be a good writer, do you mean go out there and get the experience, or how to build a good article? I purposely left the question vague so you could answer it how you'd like. So, like. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's cunning. Right. Okay. So, okay, well, I'll answer that now in two, two ways. So I'll start off with the how to write a good article. So how to write a good article. First of all, set yourself a word limit. My word limit is 600 words. I never go over it, even if it's a story that there's loads of great anecdotes I'd love to work in. I can't use all of those because, as I mentioned earlier, my reader's attention span is short and I can't overwhelm them. I've got to get to the nub of the story. 
the way to tell a good story is is to use the sort of journalistic approach of using who, when, why, what, and where. So who is the researcher? Where is the university um, that they did the work at, uh, or maybe the field station where they did the work? Um, and then what is what was the question they were going to answer? Um, and then uh, then you go through a process of so you you but you start off by actually stating all of those things in the opening paragraph. You make sure you've got the question in there that they were going to answer that they wanted to answer. Um, who did it, where they did it, and also why they did it. So very often there's a bit of introduction, which is sort of like trying to set the scene for why this is an interesting question. Why why did these people get out of bed in the morning to do this bit of science? Um, then the rest of the article is sort of telling people how this research was done, what the observations were, um, and how the research was done can, you know, you have to basically, you can't give all the detail. You definitely don't tell people about the control experiments. The control experiments are in the research paper to convince research scientists that the piece of science that you're presenting isn't an artifact, that actually this is a real result. But you don't need to tell your, um, your TV audience or your readers um, who aren't really, you know, who aren't scientists, they don't care about being convinced that this is true or not, you're telling them it's true, that's good enough for them. So don't ever include control experiments unless you're doing something that's a comparison. Um, and then um, you, you sort of try and build the story. So if you have a series of experiments, okay, here's one experiment. They discovered, they made this observation. This is the, the interpretation they put on that observation. But then that posed another question. And then you can use that question to then bounce on to the next paragraph where they did the next experiment. Um, and that's a way of sort of taking people chronologically through how a story developed. Um, and then at the end, you give a, a sort of summarizing paragraph. And by the end, you've probably given the result one or two times, but it never hurts to repeat it um, because the people who are reading your piece of science writing, they don't remember stuff as fast as you think they're going to remember it because, um, because they're just not in that mind zone that you're in when you're writing it. And so, um, so it's fine to repeat things um, to really drive that message home. Um, of course, you must make sure you avoid all jargon. You know, you can't use words like kinematics. You can't use words like morphology. Um, you can't use words like dorsal and ventral. Um, you know, the, these, these are words that are just not acceptable in public communication of science. You have to use sort of, you know, front back. I mean, it's as basic as that because that's what it means. And that will be more accessible to your readership. Then I tend to try and tie, you know, I will try to tie the fight, the summarizing article, the paragraph right at the end. And I'll just try to make, try to either give, oh, well, this is what they've discovered in this piece of research. And um, this is what they want to go on and do next. Or, you know, you can just come up with, say, maybe some little pun at the end or maybe, 
you made an observation at the beginning of the article about um, something that the authors had observed, and maybe you can mention that again at the end, a way of tying in the end of the article to the beginning of the article. Um, and all the way through, um, you're following the who did it, what did they do, what did they find, what did they conclude sort of model for presenting the information. And you have to present, you have to tell the reader what to infer from an observation because you can't assume that they're going to be able to make that inference themselves. And if they can't make that inference, they're going to stop reading and they're not going to carry on with the rest of your article. And if the person who's reading the article is a professor and they were able to draw that conclusion themselves, well, they're just very pleased because you've just shown how clever they are. And they were able to get to the conclusion before you told everyone. So, you know, it's a win-win situation. Okay. <laughs> just making Good. sure that you tell people what to conclude. Yeah, like a, I like that journalistic approach. This is pretty good. Do you, do you ever get pushback from authors when you when you submit uh, your work to them and they say, you know, I didn't mean back, I meant dorsal or something like that? Does anyone ever ask you to be more particular or jargon heavy? Oh, absolutely. And or I'll ask for a quotation and I'll say, can you present me this quotation as if you were talking to a 10 year old child and they'll still put the technical jargon in? At which point I then go back and I said, well, actually, we're not speaking to your peers. We're trying to get this out to as wide an audience as possible. I basically explain what I'm trying to do. And then they go, oh, yeah, no, that's OK. That makes sense. You know, and then it's it's a collaborative process. But I, you know, I, I, I don't expect people to understand all of the sort of nuances that go into science writing and they have to be explained and that's completely fine um, because I'm ha happy to do that so that at the end I have a happy author who's happy that their research is being broadcast to as wide a community as possible um, because there's nothing worse than somebody being unhappy about the way their science is being presented I mean you guys work incredibly hard at your research and, you know, I, I would be mortified if you were unhappy about an article I'd written about your work. You know, I want to convey it in as fair, fair a way as possible, but get it out there to as wide an audience as possible. So, yeah, sometimes people say, oh, no, you can't say it like this. You have to say it like this. And then I explain, well, actually, then I won't be able to get your story over to, you know, to the general public. It needs to be said in this way because they don't really understand what you're saying when you say thin film diffraction. Let's assume our listeners all have perfect spelling and grammar. So that that aside, <laughs> mm -hmm. what would make a good sentence? Lots of adverbs and adjectives. So you use those to create atmosphere. Um, and of course, you know, are you talking about your opening sentence or are you talking about your sentence when you're conveying the details of the experiments that were done and the um, uh, and the results that, you know, came out of those experiments? Every sentence is different. But I think the thing to bear in mind is, are you trying to create atmosphere with this sentence? And if you are, um, you can use, you know, adverbs to emphasize you know how difficult this was or how interesting it was or how funny it was you know maybe the animal did something a bit strange when you were trying to do this experiment in fact I had an author recently who was telling me about working with um humans who um human subjects who um one of them was struggling to walk on a treadmill and just kept on falling around laughing all the time you know and I was able to create some atmosphere because when I mentioned the quotation the person who said that quotation, they didn't say it, they chuckled 
you know, it's it's playing with words. Um, so to write a good sentence, you can maybe write that sentence in the most direct way you would write it, but then go back and play with the language. Put in an adverb to create some atmosphere. Can you add, put in an adjective to create some atmosphere, to bring in some colour? That is the way to build up a sentence, is to go back and, and then sort of see how you can create atmosphere in it. Okay, so I guess I should give more context for this question. So I've read a few style guides. Uh, so for example, there's Strunk and White and, and some of those classic books that just describe how to write correctly uh, or mm -hmm. not correctly, but you know, um, engagingly. And mm -hmm. it seems to me like some of them focused mostly on what makes a good sentence. So using the active voice, not the passive voice. Yeah. But there are a couple style guides that I've looked at that focus more on the structure of not just a sentence, but the whole paragraph and a whole body of work. That question aside, so now, now with that context aside, if I'm interested in this, you're saying that that good writing should be descriptive and you know you use adjectives and adverbs. So what do you think of an author like George Orwell, where he's extremely concise and, and terse? I think you have to find a happy medium between the two. So as I said, when I'm, you know, if I've got to create, convey an experiment, the result from that experiment and how to, how to interpret it in one sentence, I will become very terse and more like George Orwell. But in the opening paragraph where I'm trying to create atmosphere and I'm trying to get people interested and hooked I will use more atmosphere and I will use more adjectives and more adverbs. And so it isn't one size fits all. It depends on where that sentence is in the article. And you will have different styles of sentence depending on are they at the beginning? Are they at the end? Something that I do, I recommend writers to do is to mix up sentence length. So you might have one sentence that's incredibly long, you know, where you're sort of like posing a question or, you know, were they going to find this or were they going to find that or you know were they going to find that this was going to work and then the next sentence might just be it did you know and that's this whole sentence um but it's it's short and punchy so i think be prepared to be flexible and use different styles of sentence to do different types of jobs at different points in your article i don't think there is one way of writing a sentence that you would just use religiously all the way through. If you were a newspaper reporter and, you know, you'd got 75 words to tell a whole story and yes, then you go for a very punchy, um, you know, who did it? What did they do? Why did they do it? What did they find? And that's the way I write when I'm writing the brief summary that goes at the beginning of all press releases. So when I send out a press release, um, you know, they get the 600 words, here's the bells and whistles story article, but there's a brief summary at the beginning that tells them, um, you know, this was the question and this was the answer, because um, that's what the journalist wants to know if they're going to go and feature that, uh, that story. Um, and then you go even shorter when you go to the title and the title should be when I say it's eight words, you know, if you've got an animal name that's sort of three words long, then obviously your eight words gets up to goes up to 11. But the title should tell the whole story, you know, um, about how an animal breathes, about how an animal walks, about how an animal deals with climate change. 
you should be able to say that in eight words. And, and that is, you know, that is a very short sentence. So I don't think there's one way to write a sentence. I think there are many different ways. And it depends on where you are in the article, what job that sentence is doing at that particular point. Is it creating atmosphere? Is it being factual and, and to the, you know, to the point? Is it being, is it giving you entertainment? Is it giving you background story, which you could be a bit more elaborate with? It depends on what role that sentence is playing you've really looked into how to write and you've looked into all sorts of you know you've gone to you know you've read books about writing I I, I have absolutely no formal training in writing I've just kind of made it up as I've gone along <laughs> <laughs> you know I've got rid of the stuff that didn't work years ago <laughs> what other mistakes do scientists often do that you'd, you'd like to correct in their early years let's say an undergrad is listening or a master's student is listening what should they what should they watch out for in their own writing when you're writing, think about your audience. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about using jargon and writing clearly using non-technical language. You, When you write, you have to write for different audiences. And I think the thing to do as a young person is to crystallize who your audience that you're writing for is and what level they are coming to your writing at. When I was writing my thesis, I can remember my PhD supervisor getting incredibly frustrated because he couldn't follow half of what I was writing. And the problem was I actually wasn't getting down on the word on the page half of, of most of the information. Most of the information was still back in my head. So I was doing a dreadful job. I was doing a, a fantastic job of expecting my reader to read between the lines and I think this is a mistake a lot of people make when they're writing they expect people to infer things from the words that are on the page and actually nobody can infer things from the words that are on the page in all writing you should never assume that your reader can infer anything because you know you might be writing a paper for journal of experimental biology and that paper might be picked up by a physicist who's interested in, um, you know, biomechanics, but from a physics perspective rather than a biology perspective, and they might not know the biology. And so I think that is an easy mistake for undergraduates to fall into, is to assume that everyone knows more than they do. And actually, no, that's not the way it is. You really can't assume that people will be able to infer. So I think that's probably the biggest mistake most people make in their writing. I like that. That's that's a pretty bird's eye view mistake. It's not it's not a, a zoomed in mistake. Like some people when they talk about writing, they talk about very particular things like, you know, active versus passive voice as an example, just because it's in my head. But this is this is pretty zoomed right. out. I, I like it. It's good. But that's a good point you're also making about the passive voice. And, and this goes back to something I said earlier about science being a human endeavor. But if you say the experiment was done, that kind of infers that it was done by some sort of faceless automaton. It could have been done by a robot. It was done. No, that experiment was not just done randomly. A human being slaved over it. They might have gone without sleep for three days to do this experiment. You know, you need to make sure that it's clear that it's a human endeavor. And that's why, yeah, I totally agree. Passive voice is a complete no-no. You must never write in the passive voice in um in science communication. And, and I, I, I understand why it's right, written in research papers when you have a whole 
team of people it's important to bring in the human endeavor and to avoid using the passive voice that's one of the first things I take out of all outside JB articles that come my way what makes a good title what do you think of when you when you write a title Okay, what makes a good title? A good title needs to be short, it needs to be punchy, it needs to be to the point, it needs to mention, okay, in the case of comparative physiology, it needs to mention the animal that's doing whatever it is it's doing, and then you basically need to say what the animal's doing. But if you can say it in a way that's a bit quirky or a bit interesting or a bit different, that will help as well. And the title is always the last thing I write because it's only once I've finished getting my head around the article, my head around the whole story, that actually I can condense it down into eight words. Um, mm. And sometimes um, I'll find that actually, actually I'll have come up with a punchline at the end of the article. And actually that is also, maybe some of the words from that punchline are gonna go into the title. So that we're tying the title to the punchline so that when the reader comes down to the end, it's like, yeah, okay, now I see where the, where the title comes from. And in fact, the title, with the first paragraph should basically tell the whole story because the whole story you know in the in the in, in the opening paragraph you basically pose the question um you know uh, whatever the question might be and then actually the title is the answer to that question and so if you were to cut the whole of the rest of the article it wouldn't matter your um your reader will know what the story is just by reading the first paragraph what the question was and then the title is the answer Bingo, that's the whole story. That's the, the most concise answer to that question I've ever heard or read. That's, that's amazing. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> Just to wrap up, so some listeners likely have never thought about editing as a career choice, but I'm sure some are now. So what would you like to say to science trainees who are intrigued by your career path? Um, go out there, get writing, get your writing published. Get your writing edited. By a professional editor so contribute to something like outside JEB or some other service that's um, you, you know the other journals run but make sure I contributed to science magazine's next wave careers website and that was amazing experience it was brutal I had my first article cut from a thousand words to 300 with no explanation and that's why when I edit outside JB writers, I try to explain everything that I've done so that they learn from the experience rather than just being edited and having no understanding for why these things are being changed. Um, but yeah, get yourself edited, get yourself published, write for your student newspaper. That is a great place to go out there and start, you know, cutting your teeth as a writer. You've got to have a story and you've got to sell it to your editor. And if you can sell it to the editor, um, you know, to sell a, a story, you need to sell it in about you know, 100 words, you know, you've got to make it interest, sound interesting, and make the editor say, yeah, I'd like you to write, you know, 450 words on that, that sounds really interesting. So just go out there and get experience, write a blog, um, do podcasts like you're doing, just get involved with science communication. Um, in any way you can, if you've got a student radio station, see if you can volunteer for that. Um, look for opportunities. Um, I mean, people who live in the United States, or I'm not sure about the AAAS's Mass Media Fellowship, how broad based that is, but there are science writing fellowships out there for people um, to actually go and get experience of working in the media. Um, and, you know, all of this builds up your CV as someone 
who is interested in science communication. And it's all about building up your CV so that you stand out from everybody else who says, hey, I'm interested in science communication because it's a very easy thing to say. But to prove that you're actually doing it, you have to go out there and get yourself published. Well, that makes me excited to join you for Outside JB. That's awesome. So it's uh, <laughs> my last question then. So how can listeners get a hold of you if they'd like? So are you on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or any other social media? Um, I tend to steer clear of most social media. Um, so, um, but actually the best way to get in touch with me is my email address is at the bottom of every Inside JEB article. And so if you go and find JEB, uh, my email address is plastered all over the journal. You can't move for it. <laughs> so, so that's probably the best way to reach me. Well, I'm sure you'll have a lot of people applying then to be part of Outside JEB. <laughs> yes. um, uh, yeah, well, I'm sure you're going to do a great job of advertising it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a way, this is sort of an advertisement. So that's great. Um, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a quick clarifying question, who can apply for Outside JB? So I'm looking for people who are sort of later stage graduate students and postdocs, basically. So early career researchers who are sort of building their careers along the way. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I started Outside JB was to also give people experience at writing in a more in not in writing for a broader audience because if you're writing grant applications you have to write an introduction and that introduction has to be read by somebody who may not be won't be an expert in your field and you know the skills that you build in outside JEB are the same skills that you will use in all sorts of communication even in your professional career so this is why we open it for mostly for graduate students and for postdocs um, and when I, I only have uh, 15 places on the whole of the team and, it, and every year it depends on how many people step down. So some years I have more places to offer than others. Um, and I also sometimes I'm looking for people with expertise in specific areas. So I try to make sure I have a good balance across all of the areas covered by JEB. So that's comparative physiology, biomechanics, neurothology, um, ecophysiology. And so I'm trying to cover those areas. So if I've got a lot of comparative physiologists and virtually no biomechanists, some, some years I'm really saying, I'm really sorry, I can't take you. I know you'd be a great writer, but I need someone who's got more biomechanics experience. Um, and then other years it's like, I've got too many biomechanists. I need some more comparative physiologists, you know. So I, you know, I, I only have a limited number of places that I can offer um, but, you know, I'm always interested to hear from people who are curious about science communication because I think it's a fantastic thing to do and I want to encourage as many people as possible. That's amazing. So, Dr. Catherine Knight, thank you for coming on Beyond the Test Tube. You're very welcome. Listen to more episodes of Beyond the Test Tube every 15th of every month, either on Google Play or Apple Podcasts, or visit our website on Simplecast Beyond the Test Tube.